could open your Bibles to John chapter 1. We'll be reading in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the very word of God. We're doing a short series on the subject of the Christian's communion with God. And we've said that to enjoy communion with God is the right of every believer, since the essence of being a Christian is to be in union with Jesus Christ. And we've said that having communion with God is not just a benefit, not just a privilege, not just a right, but something that's actually essential and critical to our gospel witness. Because what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ. In the gospel witness, in the gospel message, we are inviting people to join us, to come with us into communion with the one true God through Jesus Christ, into fellowship with the God who made all things, into this union and to this fellowship in which we find joyful communion with God's people and with God himself. So this subject of communion with God is something that I want every Christian to know and to enjoy because it's your right as a believer, as one who's united to Christ. And it is something that I want every Christian and our church especially to enjoy and to practice and to commune with God because it is essential to our gospel witness. The whole Bible story is about God who made a world and created us to enjoy fellowship with him 
in this world forever. That's the great story of the Bible. As J.I. Packer has written, communion with God is the goal of the whole Bible, the essence of true religion. It is the definition of Christianity. So this is a very important subject. Now, what does it mean? What does it look like to have communion with God? You, you know what it's like to have communion with the person next to you, the person that you can see, the person you can speak to, and they speak back to you. What does it mean? What are we talking about when we talk about communion with God? Well, we mentioned last week that uh, the Puritan John Owen wrote a book titled Communion with God, and the most distinctive contribution that he makes to the subject in his book is the idea that the Christian enjoys communion with all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in a peculiar and distinctive way. It's not that these distinctions are exclusive. So we spoke last week about we commune with God the Father in his great love for us as his people. It doesn't mean then that we don't enjoy communion with the Son in love or the Spirit in love. It just means that this is what is primary about our communion with the Father. Now this week we move on to speak about the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And Owen says that the distinctive way in which we enjoy communion with God the Son is in his grace, in his grace. Our text this morning teaches this in verse 16. John 1.16 says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. From the fullness of the Son of God manifested in the world, everyone who's united to him, without exception, has received grace upon grace. Since we receive from the Son, from Jesus, all manner of grace, it is then in grace that we receive from Jesus that we enjoy our fellowship with him. So, this morning, I want to talk to you about Jesus. Is that okay? You come to church expecting to hear about Jesus? I want to talk about the grace of God, particularly manifested to us in his son, Jesus Christ. And then I want us to think together about this communion with God in his grace in Christ and how it will then result in our communion, our giving back to him, our reflecting this grace into his world. So this morning as we look at this text before us, and just like any of these particular subjects, we could turn to many texts. But here's the one that Owen talks about quite a bit. I find helpful in thinking about this. And I want us to consider this morning these three things about Jesus so we can commune with him and his grace to us. First, Jesus is the glory of God. Second, Jesus is the gift of God. And then lastly, Jesus is the power of God. The glory of God, the gift of God, and the power of God all coming to us in Jesus. So let's begin. First, the grace that we find in Jesus 
this communion we have with God through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is nothing less than what the Bible often calls the glory of God. When you commune with Jesus in his grace, if you can taste it, receive it today, you will have encountered nothing less than the glory of God. So just imagine, if you, if you could see right now the glory of God, what would you see? How would you describe it? What would the glory of God look like? Well, here in our text this morning, and I hope you've got it open, hope you got your Bible open. We're going to be looking at 18 verses together this morning. I want you to notice that John begins his gospel the same way the first book of the Bible, Genesis, begins. In the beginning. But whereas Genesis immediately introduces God and his creating, John introduces the word and his existing. He says, this word was with God, and verse 2 says, he was in the beginning with God. Now, it is important to see here that John is writing from a thoroughly Jewish perspective. He is writing in concert with the great Jewish story and from its monotheistic worldview. In the beginning, the story begins. You know that. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If we could go back to the very beginning, the very, very beginning, before there was anything, the Jewish faith was not, there was nothing, God was there. And so we begin to ask, what else? What else was there in the beginning? And from a Jewish perspective, you couldn't exactly say nothing because God is not nothing. <laughs> yeah, God is everything. And so Jewish philosophers began to reason that, well, with God, there would have to be, from the beginning, for example, what should we say? God's wisdom. God could not exist without his wisdom. And this wasn't just a bunch of Jewish philosophizing. They get this from the word of God itself. Proverbs 8, for example, is a key text from this Jewish perspective. All throughout Proverbs 8, it speaks of wisdom personified, the wisdom of God. It speaks in Proverbs 8.22 as God's wisdom, something that the Lord possessed. And that, that verb there, possessed, could even be translated, gave birth to or generated from the very beginning. So Jewish theologizers and theologians would, would think about this relationship between God and his wisdom. Did God create wisdom? Well, that's probably not quite the way to say it. Because how could God exist without there being his wisdom? Is this blowing your mind yet? You into some Jewish philosophy? Well, Jewish philosophers would even go further than this. And they would say, there's something else that must have been with God in the beginning. So, for example, they would say something similar about God.
God's law, God's Torah. How could God exist without his ways also existing? And can we not also say that then the Torah, the law, the ways of God were with God in the beginning? And then there was the word. Because how was it that God created the world? He spoke. He simply spoke the word. The psalmist says in Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. So in the beginning, before there was anything created by God, there was his word. And when God speaks his uncreated word, powerful things happen. God's word is powerful enough that all material things come into existence. And that's exactly what John says, uh, what John is saying here in verse 3. He says, all things were made through him. That is, through his word. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So before anything was created, there existed the powerful word of God. Now, all of that is consistent with Jewish belief and worldview. When John is writing here and starting his gospel out the same way that Genesis starts out, he, he's writing to people familiar with the great Jewish story. And he's saying, just think about this. Think about what we have been imagining about God in the beginning and his glory. But we can see here that John is writing his gospel to assure Jewish Christians that their belief in Jesus as the Messiah of Israel, the one who's brought the great story to its conclusion, is not out of line with the great Jewish story, because that's what they would have been accused of. He's writing to assure Jewish Christians they're in the story. They are not Jewish heretics. Their belief in Jesus is not a departure from Jewish monotheism. Now, there's no doubt, of course, that the early Christians were accused of this. But John wants to show that faith in Jesus is not a different faith from the great Jewish story. It's not a departure, a move away from what the great Jewish story has been about from the beginning. This promise of God creating the world so that he can come and enjoy communion in his world with his people forever. Jesus and people who follow Jesus are still a part of that story. But what is distinctive here now is that John is saying that the historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, has caused these first Christians, these Jewish Christians living in the story, to go back and reread their Bibles, to reread the Old Testament in light of the coming of Jesus. When John says the word was God in verse 1, he just dropped a bomb in the middle of the great Jewish story. Not to blow it up, but to cause a radical rethinking. Because John says here that the pre-existent word was not just with God, that fits in the Jewish story. He says not that this pre-existent word is simply God-like or divine 
or a God, like somebody who knocked on your door might have tried to convince you one time. By the way, if, if John wanted to say that the word that became flesh was merely a God or divine, there was a very easy, well-known Greek way of saying that, and John doesn't say it that way. He instead speaks of Jesus' identity, this word, with God in the beginning, in a way that means he is God in the same way that the Father is God. But at the same time, notice this is what just blew the minds of those first Christians going back and rereading their Old Testament in light of Jesus. At the same time, he is distinct from the Father. And John writes his gospel, at least in part, to help us put all of this together in our heads. Because as you know, Trinitarian Christian, it's kind of hard to do that, make sense of it all. So now John goes on to say in verse 14, that this pre-existent word who was with God and who shared in the same nature as God, here's what he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, you're, you're Christians. You're so used to this. How many Christmases have you celebrated in your life? You know this story. We're talking here, of course, about what we call the incarnation. We celebrate it every year during Advent. But John is really putting it to the philosophical and theological views of his day. He's not telling a different story. He's saying, no, this is the story. This is what the Old Testament, the great Jewish story, has been looking to all along. For the highest God of all Greek philosophy could not possibly be material. Why would God, who created all things, ever become one with his creation? It's preposterous. The gods, of course, could, in pagan thought, become uh, enter into the world disguised as mortals, but it was just a disguise. That's not what John is saying here. Adamantly, clearly, emphatically, he says the word did not merely take on flesh, like a mask, like a disguise. He became flesh. He entered into the world he made. From the Jewish perspective, John is saying that the God who created all things here became part of, one with, united to his creation in the body, in the person of the Jesus of history. It's a bold claim to be sure. But John goes on from that. He speaks of the now-enfleshed word dwelling among us here in verse 14, using a verb, dwelled among us, using a verb that you're probably, you probably know this. It means to tabernacle. The use of the verb is clearly meant then to recall another part of the great Jewish story. To use that word is to remind us of what the great story is all about. It reminds us, of course, not just of the story of Genesis, but of the story of the Exodus. When God lived with his people in the wilderness after the exodus in the tabernacle. That's where God came to dwell with his people. 
So just, John is saying that just as the coming of Jesus reflects back on the original creation in Genesis 1, so also his coming reflects back to the Exodus story. And what he intends to stress here is the fact that in Jesus, God has come. God's presence has come to be with his people, to be among his people in their journey to the promised land. And that guiding presence of God is to be found nowhere else than in the person of Jesus. This is where we are invited to look if we want to see the glory of God at work in his world. So again, you want to say, well, where's the glory of God? What does it look like? The Bible is emphatic. It's in the word made flesh. In Jesus, the real historical Jesus of Nazareth, we see the glory of God. God's very presence here dwelling with us. And since this word is God, that means that just as the word was with God in the beginning, so now God, think of it, has come to be with us. That's what the Bible story is all about. And we Christians really need to get this right. It's not about how we escape from God's world to go be with him. The story is all about how God comes to be with us in his world. To see Jesus, then, is to see the glory of the one true creator God. Now, if that's so, then a lot of things flow from that. One is we should be Jesus people through and through. The name of Jesus should be on our lips. We should sing about Jesus, which we did, and we'll do some more. Jesus is everything for us as Christians. And if this is so, then Jesus is not just the glory of God. He is also the gift of God. He is the greatest gift. In fact, because in Jesus... God held back nothing. In Jesus, God gave to you and to me everything. Since Jesus, since in Jesus, God has given to us himself. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to let that sink in because it takes a little bit to get it. In fact, this is for many, many people an underwhelming claim. It's practically a disappointment. Uh, if you came today and you're like, I wonder what God would have for me, and we say, here's what we have to offer you. We have to offer you Jesus. And you say, eh, that's fine. Got anything else? Well, then you understand the point I'm trying to make. In Jesus, God has given his absolute, very best gift to the world. And what happens, John, what does John tell us? What happens when God, out of love, remember the Father's great love for us? What happens when the Father, out of pure love, pours out his greatest gift, the best gift he could possibly give to the world? What happens? Read it in verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Have you ever been given a gift that you did not appreciate very much? 
Perhaps you faked a smile, forced a thank you as sincerely as you could, and then promptly discarded the gift as discreetly as possible. Anybody ever thrown away a gift somebody gave you? What if, though, looking back now, you find that you actually threw away a treasure, an enormous treasure, simply because you did not quite get it? You didn't know what the treasure was. This is what so many do with Jesus. Verse 10 says, He was in the world. The world was made through him, and the world didn't know him. What a travesty. Now, hang on a minute, because even those who knew him best found themselves constantly on the verge of rejecting him, of not knowing him. One of Jesus' own disciples, we read in John 14, Philip, just before Jesus went to the cross. So after he's been with him for three years, daily, living his life with him, Philip says to Jesus in John 14, 8, hey, uh, Jesus, would you show us the Father? You know what he's saying? We've been with you. It's great. Interesting. Can we see God? Would you show us the Father? And Jesus' response goes like this, John 14, 9. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Now that's a travesty of another sort. And one that I am eager to do what I can this morning to help you avoid that kind of disappointment. How long can you and I go on claiming to be a disciple of Jesus and say, well, Jesus is good, but can I have more? Got something else? Communion with God through the grace of the Son of God is essential so that we do not become dissatisfied with heaven's greatest gift and end up putting it to the side. So what is the grace of God that we see in Jesus? Now, again, as we've already noted, John has the whole Jewish story in front of him as he now is rereading that story through the lens of Jesus as the great gift, the one who's brought the whole story to its culmination. So again, verse 14, dwelt. The verb for tabernacle. He's he's taking us back to the Exodus story. And most commentators on John's gospel will tell you that here in John 1, he he has in particular a, a passage in mind in the book of Exodus, in the Exodus story. He's thinking especially of, of Exodus 32 to 34. In Exodus 33, in that middle chapter of those three, Moses is pleading with God for help. You remember the story? I'm I'm dependent on you recalling some of this. So if you don't remember it, just turn there quickly. Uh, Moses is pleading with God for help. Why? Why is he begging God for help? It's because he's been given a task. Get the people out of Egypt. Lead them into the land of promise. 
and it's an enormous task. By the way, it's an enormous task not because it's a matter of logistics. <laughs> That's what so many people are concerned about. Like, how many people? Is that possible? How many sacrifices? The enormity of the task is not because of the logistics. What he's been asked to do, he understands this, in leading the people out of Egypt and into the land of promise is, at least at this point in redemptive history, we might say the completion of God's great, long-awaited covenant with Abraham. Genesis 12, what God has promised to Abraham. This is what Moses, I'm asking you to bring this great promise to its completion, to its fulfillment But what makes it difficult, what makes the task so enormous is the complication of a bunch of stubborn, rebellious people. Just the chapter before, Exodus 33, Exodus 32, and you know know what happens there? Where is this Moses gone up to the mountain to see God? We We need gods we can see, and so they make an idol. And worship it. So God has come, or Moses has come to God to ask for help because he's like, how in the world am I going to lead people like that into the fulfillment of God's long-awaited covenant? How is that going to happen? God, if you don't make this possible, if you don't make this powerfully true, if you're not the one who's going to go with us and see it through to completion, I'm out. That's what Moses is doing. And so God's answer to Moses comes like this in Exodus 33:14. He says, "My presence will go with you and I will give you rest." Now that's a nice word of assurance. The presence of God with his people is what will make the people of Israel different from everyone else. If God is with us, I mean, these people are just like all the other people, rebellious, sinful, wicked, evil, But if God will dwell with us, if God will be in our midst, then, then and only then, we will be different from everybody else. Now, don't miss that. It's still the defining difference for God's people today. If God is not with us, if God doesn't dwell in our midst then we are not his people, and all of our labors are in vain. So God comes to assure Moses that he will be with them. And then, after hearing this assuring word in verse 14, Exodus 33, 14, Moses goes a little further. He boldly says to God in verse 18, Will you show me your glory? What he's asking for is for God to give more evidence. Will you back this up, God? You've made a promise. You've given me this assurance. You will go with me. You will go with us. You will give me rest. But show me your glory. I want to know that you are a God who keeps his word. If I'm going to keep on this trail, on this path. If I'm going to go on with this calling you've given me in my life, Moses is saying, I want to see, I want to know that you are a God who can be trusted, that you are not going to abandon me even for good reason. I mean, these people, 
you got a lot of good reasons to say done with them. But I'm not going on if you're going to give up on me. Is this God a God of his word? Imagine you've signed a contract with a company to remodel your house. You've checked them out, done your homework. They're reputable, best you could tell. You sign the contract with them. You make the down payment. Day one, they show up. They're respectful, diligent, hardworking. Work has begun. The friend says to you, how's it going? Great. They've shown up every day, doing the work. Sometime between day one and completion day, they don't show up. Phone call, no answer. They leave you hanging. They've taken your money, your deposits, but they don't finish the work. Not only have you lost significant money, but you're going to now have to spend even more money and time to get the job done. Moses is pleading with God, I don't want that to happen. How do I know I can trust you? Show me your glory. I'm in the wilderness with these rebellious, idolatrous people that you have every right to say, I'm done with them. So how in the world am I going to get them to the end? God, we've gone too far into this project. I need to know that you're going to come through, that you're not going to abandon this project after all. So show me your glory. Assure me that you are still in this. And by the way, in saying, show me your glory, he's basically saying, give me your best. I want the very best you can do, God, at assuring me that you will fulfill your word. So God answers Moses' request in a famous, though enigmatic, passage at the end of Exodus 33. When he gives Moses a sight of his glory, but it's, it's, not, it's, not, um, it's not a full glimpse. Moses sees what's described as his back, but not his face. Now, whatever that means, and of course, all the commentaries will just try to tell you what it means. I have no idea what that means. But whatever it means, whatever it is precisely that Moses saw, don't come up to me afterward and ask what he saw. I have no idea. That's my answer. I'm telling you now. Whatever it is that Moses saw, it is, all commentaries will tell you this, it is the most elevated glimpse of God anyone ever had. It was enough to assure Moses. This God is going to see his project through. Now, as impossible as it may seem, listen, Christian. God has given us a greater assurance than that. John says here in John 1, we have had an experience like Moses. We too have seen God's glory. We have seen the Son of God himself. In Jesus, we have gazed into the eyes of God. We have seen his face. So you say, okay, tell me, John, what did you see? What does the glory of God look like? You ever wanted to see what he looked like? Here's what John tells us. It's full of grace and truth. 
When Moses got a glimpse of God's glory, when he saw what God was like, he said in Exodus 34, verse 6, God was, this is how he described it, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. John's expression here, full of grace and truth, is the Greek equivalent to that expression. In that sense, John says what we see in Jesus matches what Moses saw when he beheld the glory of God. The sense is the same because it's the same God. But then again, Moses, remember, only saw the glory of God in part. John says that in Jesus, the glory of God has come in full. And when did he see that? When did John, when did John come to this conclusion? Reading John 14 again with Philip's question, I doubt it was any time prior to Jesus' death and his resurrection. It wasn't until he saw the Son of God rejected when he saw the son come to his own and his own turn their back on him. That's when he saw the glory of God because what he describes here is when I saw him, when, this is what he looks like. He is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. He is full of grace and truth. Precisely at the moment when his own rejected him, he came near he came close. People of God, listen to me. No matter who you are and what you've done, this is a God full of steadfast love and faithfulness. He's not giving up on you. He has not given up on you. We sang a phrase this morning, hope, did it say springs eternal? Is that what it said? Our hope springs eternal. You say, it's devastation, loss, it's over. This is a God who even raises the dead. He will see his project through. It's at the cross. It's at the place where rejection is most tangible. When we killed him, we killed the God who created all things on the cross. That's where we see his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Do not envy Moses for his experience with God. Do not wish for the gift that he received on Sinai. For you and I have been giving, given something so much better. In Jesus, we have been given God's grace. We've been given the greatest gift God could possibly give us. The greatest assurance of his love and his absolute commitment to fulfill every last promise of his word. We sing a song here that goes like this. What gift of grace is Jesus my redeemer? There is no more. For heaven now to give. In Jesus, God has given you his all. He's a gift. Now, as we've been saying, and this is, I'll, I'll go quickly. Communion with God is a way to describe the entire promise of the Bible. It's a story that the Old Testament is longing for. A time when God promised to come and dwell with us forever. Not the promise for us leaving to go dwell with him, but God coming to dwell with us. That's the whole hope of the Old Testament. When God will be with us here on earth as in heaven. So to be a Christian then is to believe that this promise is fulfilled in Jesus. In Jesus, we have tasted the grace of God. 
to believe this then is to inevitably reflect that grace into God's world. And here's why. Jesus is not just the glory of God. Jesus is not just the gift of God. How could it get better than this? Jesus is the power of God. And since you are united to him, do you know what that means? I'm looking, I could look at every one of you in the eyes right now. This is, this is, this is a secret of the trade, pastoral trade. I just want to look at each one of you and say, don't you know who you are? Trying to stir you up right now because if you are united to Christ, if God has poured out his greatest gift upon you, Christian, then the power of God resides and is at work in you. And everywhere you go, and every vocation and every task and every calling he's given you to walk into. And to have communion with God then, think about it, is not just to receive from him. You must receive. But communion means then an interaction. Yes? Communion means you, you receive and you give. It's not a payback. Don't think of it as a payback. It's communion. It's fellowship. So if we've received God's grace in Jesus, then to have communion with God in his grace involves us reflecting this grace into God's world. Now look at verses 16 and 17. We wrap this up. From his fullness, John says, we have all received grace upon grace. The, the Greek here is a little confusing at first. Well, no, it is confusing because it's grace against grace. It, the, the preposition is anti, like over against. So some commentators say that this, this is substitution. From his fullness, we receive grace and then a substitution of grace. What would that mean? Well, probably the syntax here is actually then saying this is accumulation. This is we receive grace and then what comes over against what's competing with that from God? More grace. Pile on of grace. That's what you're getting. I'll just keep preaching for a little bit longer. I'm just going to pile it on to you right now. Because you need grace and grace and grace and you got it all. In Jesus, an inexhaustible supply of blessing, one scholar calls it. That's yours, in Christ. Some of you are still doubting it. Well, verse 17 is written to try to convince you. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, do not read that as if that's saying the law was a bad thing. Don't break off the story here. No, no, no. We, I, we sang this this morning, too. I'm just always noticing these things. The fulfillment of the law comes in Christ. The law was not a bad thing. Read Romans 8, among other things. The law was a wonderful, good, gracious gift from God to his people. Jesus is more grace piled upon all this grace because he fulfills it. He embodies the hope of Judaism. He is the great fulfillment of the story. He's the one your soul is longing for. And he loves you. So I'm just asking you this morning, whoever you are, what if 
instead of rejecting him like so many do, you received me. What if you believed him instead of denying him? Well, John tells us what happened in verse 12. He came to his own, his own did not receive him. His own rejected him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you trust him instead of rejecting him, if you believe him instead of denying him, then you have on the authority of God's word the right to be called, to be named, to be known, child of God. God offers himself to you in Jesus. What else could he give you? What more do you want? What greater gift could there be? And if you receive him, if you commune with him by faith in Jesus Christ, then you become united to him. What is true of him becomes true of you. Theologians even will say, because of the way the scripture defines this union, you'll be married to him. And this is a God who keeps his promises. So now, what would happen if we communed with him? What would happen if we daily received this grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ? What if we woke up every day and reminded ourselves who we are by faith in Christ, not by what we've done, but what he's done for us? What would happen if we received this grace and then trusted him like Moses to reflect that same grace through us and into the world? Here's what would happen. This is what Jesus says to Philip right after this question. Show us the Father. Here's what he says, John 14, 12 to 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Greater works? This is the tried and tested Christian experience, by the way. You're, standing, you're sitting here today like me, 2,000-some years after the coming of Jesus. The world has never been the same. It's been radically transformed by those who believed, who received him as the fulfillment of the great Jewish story, and the world's never been the same. Guess what he wants you to do now? Guess why he's made you a part of the family of God? Guess why he looks at you with love and says, you're mine, and in you, united by faith in Christ, you have the power of God at work He's sending you into your places, into your homes, and into your vocations. He's inviting you to be a part of this great story, the kingdom of God, inaugurated in Jesus. And you have the great privilege of being his child and showing this grace into his world. So let us come to Christ. Receive his grace. And let this grace then that God is working in us manifest itself in the places that God calls us to inhabit this week. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, oh, that we would have eyes to see the riches of the grace of God poured out to us in Jesus. We look nowhere else. We ask you by your grace to 
fix our eyes. Sometimes we sing it that way. Fix our eyes on Christ, on Jesus. There is no more for heaven now to give. God has given us his all because he gave us his son. The one who was with God in the beginning, indeed the one who was God. Now, Jesus, we ask you as we commune with you in the Lord's Supper, we ask you to, whatever other things trouble us or make us question or doubt, would you help us to see that you are the glory of God manifest in the world. You are the gift of God. What more could God give? And you are the very power of God now. We are united to you by faith. So we've got challenges ahead of us this week. We've got trouble at work, difficulties. We've got relationship issues. We have problems in our home, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our relationship with our kids. We have trouble in their neighborhoods. There's all kinds of challenges. There's suffering. There's pain. There's evil. There's temptations. Now, Lord, we're not going if you're not going with us. Show us your glory. Let us look upon the fullness of God's glory in Jesus now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.